Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. This week was supposed to be a vacation week for me, one I take each year to kind of wind down and recharge, spend time with friends and think and read and rest. But after the weekend we've had here in Detroit and across the country, massive uprisings inspired by police brutality and systemic racism, I felt an imperative to come back to the studio, sit in front of this microphone, and help to make sense of what we're seeing and what we're hearing and what we're feeling. I think I'm supposed to offer words that advance the conversation and shed light on the dynamics that have led to the massive demonstrations and protests and, yes, the rioting that we've seen over the past four days. And be sure, we've put together a show that I think will help us all do that. But before we get to all of that, before we try to think through all of this together, I want to say something about how you might be feeling. And let's start with this. Whatever you're feeling right now, however you're reacting to the stark images and messages we are all trying to process, it's okay. It really is. The anger, the sadness, the frustration, whichever of those emotions is consuming you right now, it's okay. It's okay to feel all of that. It's okay to lean 100% into those feelings. All of what we're seeing comes on top of two and a half months of us enduring the most devastating pandemic in a century. And I think by now, all of us just feel worked over to the point of being raw about nearly everything. So our emotions were all over the place even before a white police officer murdered George Floyd, a black man in Minneapolis. They were all over the place before Amy Cooper threatened to invoke the weight of institutional racism in maybe a violent way against Christian Cooper in New York Central Park. The things we've seen in the last few weeks are really vivid reminders of the troubles we had long before COVID-19. But the combination of all of these things is just overwhelming. It's just too much. And so whatever you're feeling right now, I think you need to give yourself the space to feel it, to react. And let me go further especially if what you're feeling right now is confused or conflicted, that is really okay. This is confusing stuff. This is complicated stuff. The police brutality that sparked these demonstrations has its roots in decades and centuries of inequality that we as a nation have been unable, and in many ways unwilling, to correct. Systemic racism, racism is really 
hard to understand, to get your arms around, to ferret out where it exists, and it's even harder to undo. That's why we're seeing what we're seeing in the streets right now. People don't know what else to do. They don't feel heard. They don't feel seen. And so this is their way of saying, hey, enough. Enough. And so not all of us are in a space where we can say exactly what we think about all of this, how we feel about it, and more importantly, what we want to do, how we want to move forward. Eventually, I think we will get there. I think finally, all of this will push us to deal with the things that are not right in the society, the things that are unequal, the things that are unfair. At least I hope that's where we end up. But for now, I just want to tell everyone, it's okay. Whatever you're feeling, however you're reacting, it's okay. We do have a great show, and we want to really lean into some of the dynamics here, uh, the three days of protests in Detroit and all over the country are really, really vivid, vivid examples of things that we have needed to deal with for a long time. And so we're going to talk with a number of people about that context. We're going to talk with the University of Detroit Mercy Law professor who studies sentencing, policing, and the impact of race on criminal justice and who says police brutality against people of color is a form of de facto death penalty here in the United States. We'll also talk with a writer for The Undefeated who wrote a great article recently saying Colin Kaepernick told white America about all of this. But first, WDET's own Ryan Patrick Hooper has been covering the protests here in Detroit for this station in NPR, and I want to welcome him to the studio now to Thank give you. us the latest on what's going on. Ryan, good to see you. I appreciate that, Stephen, and that was a really powerful way to start the show. I appreciate those words. Thank you. Um, let's start with you just catching us up on the last three nights in Detroit. Yeah, well, you said it's tough to understand systemic racism. It's very tough to understand what's happening in a protest in a major American city right now because it is chaos. We have seen Jekyll and Hyde protests throughout the United States uh, over the past three, four days, and that's been the same here in Detroit. Very peaceful protests during the day, led by organizers, people with instructions, you know, people keeping uh, everyone together and kind of on the same page. And then at some point when the sun starts to set, we're seeing a lot of chaos. And being there uh, on Friday night was really, really intense. I had been watching on Twitter uh, Joe Gian at the Detroit News basically following a group of about 150 protesters from 
Kobo to the Riverwalk to moving into downtown, clashing with police for hours, just back and forth. The protesters throwing bottles, some of them also being very, very peaceful. Um, The police standing, watching them, allowing them to do what they need to do, and then eventually firing tear gas. And it all culminated on Congress and Randolph. I mean, we're in, we're in the heart of downtown Detroit. We are a block, two blocks south of Greektown. Um, there's Friday night traffic mixed in, people that are just downtown to be downtown that are coming into this protest. There are people trying to keep things organized, keep it peaceful during this. And the way that it it kind of unfolds. You can't really keep track of what's happening. You know, you can't see who threw that bottle at the police. You can't see if the person that they're arresting is the person who threw that bottle. Um, some of the tactics that the police use are very uh, powerful. They, they're very uh, effective in dispersing crowds. Um, but you also wonder, do they need to be this profoundly violent at times? Mm. Uh, there's things that you see where Five police officers detain a a young man who tripped and fell, and as he was falling, they saw his back turned to him. They charged him, tackled him. As police see this, more police run up, pepper spray him after he's already detained on the ground. Um, And at the same time, there are constantly rocks being thrown, bottles being thrown, police sounding tired, sounding like they want to go home as well, saying, please, stop throwing these things we're trying to make this work together and uh it's been related as a fog of war when you're in these protests it's very tough to see what's going on understand what's going on understand why people are there what their motive is and and what to take away from that so so i want to play a clip from uh police chief james craig uh who's had a lot of things to say about these protests about what they mean from his standpoint here in the city and how his officers have uh, have responded um, and then I want to have you res- react to what to what he's saying this is police chief James Craig the majority of those who uh, were arrested lived in the metro Detroit area not in Detroit but outside of Detroit uh, we also discovered that two that were arrested uh, came from the state of Tennessee and Ohio so this idea that uh, this is outside agitators, that's a very loaded term uh, with a deep history of its own. Uh, I think for a lot of Detroiters who are watching this on social media or on television, uh, some of what the chief is saying there is, is true, but you've been in the crowds. Does, does that really matter? Is it, is it important that the people who are being arrested and detained are not mostly from the city. Is that, does that undermine the power of the message that these protesters are trying to get out? I think some community organizers would agree with that, but it's very tough to measure why someone's there and what their address has to do with it. Uh, I think in Detroit, that issue of regionalism and who has a right to come down to the city and be able to protest is something that's really been inflared, inflamed since this has begun, for sure. Um, And if you look historically at protests, the line of outside agitator is a very common one. 
and most American cities right now, their leaders are saying every protest that is happening is fueled by outside agitators. Mm -hmm. Being there on the ground, looking at the people, um, it's diverse. It is certainly young. Um, and it, it's tough to tell what the intention of someone is. Maybe someone came during the day, during the what has been peaceful protests during the day. There's, there's really no debate about that. Um, maybe they arrived with peaceful intentions. And as the day went on, maybe those feelings changed. Maybe they didn't have an intention of, of being um, of throwing a bottle, but something changed during the day. So I think we're seeing a lack of evidence by officials beyond the fact that their address, what their address says on their arrest record. Um, we're not seeing a lot of evidence of that outside agitation. That's been the same thing in Minnesota where they're saying there's white supremacists mixing into these crowds. There are people here that are just here to agitate. But we're not seeing the facts on that. And there's been major media outlets that are diving into that and saying, yeah, that, that's a narrative that we're hearing. Um, but when you're on the ground, if, if you're seeing everything that's happening and there's tear gas going, you can't decipher the intentions of somebody. And uh, I, I can't do that. I, I don't think the police are more capable of doing that either. So, so we saw the city institute a curfew yesterday in hopes of stopping not the protests, but what happens when the sun goes down after the protests. Didn't work as exactly as they probably imagined last night. What are they saying about the next few days? And what are we expecting from these protests will they continue will they grow or will they start to to dwindle you know we're coming out of the weekend i think some people might be thinking oh the end of the weekend means the end of these protests i think that's going to uh, not be the case i think these protests are going to continue into the week i think that curfew will will probably stay uh tristan taylor who's been one of the organizers of of these protests during the day he has called on chief james craig to join him on wednesday at four o'clock at a protest at police headquarters um you know the the protesters were asking for uh, the police to kneel with them yesterday uh one of the officers did do that and there was sort of an agreement in place that if he did do that, the protesters would disperse. And many of them did. But again, you see about 100, 150 that stick around at night and want to continue uh, these protests. So I, I don't think this is going to end uh, quickly. I, I think this is the type of thing that's going to linger. I think the interest is probably only going to grow. And you may see the numbers in downtown Detroit for protests grow. Uh, you may see them grow in Grand Rapids and Lansing, where we're also seeing protests. So I, I think this this feels like the beginning of, of something. Okay. Ryan Patrick Hooper of WDET and NPR has been down here in the streets with folks each night uh, in the city of Detroit. For these protests. Thank you very much for the work that you're doing and, of course, for coming in. Thank you, Stephen. And I, I really hope uh, the journalists that are covering this are safe. We have heard stories of journalists being hit with rubber bullets, of a journalist being detained. Uh, I talked to a Fox 2 cameraman who said he was tear gassed and pushed down. It's very important to have eyes on the street covering these stories, and I really hope the journalists doing it are safe down there. Yeah, I do too, of course.
All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear from University of Detroit Mercy Law Professor Jelani Jefferson Exum, who says police brutality against people of color is a form of a death sentence in this country. We also want to start hearing from you. What do you think of all the protests that we've seen here and across the country? We especially want to hear from you if you've been taking part in the demonstrations. What are you seeing when you're out there? What are you feeling that's inspiring you to get out and demonstrate in this way? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking this hour about the really spectacular demonstrations that we are seeing here in Detroit and all across the country in reaction to, inspired by, police brutality against African Americans and the systemic racism that has fueled that brutality, protected that brutality protected the purveyors of that brutality, not just for decades, but for centuries in this country. We really want to hear from you, of course, this hour uh, and hear what your reactions are to the things that you're seeing uh, and hearing and witnessing here in Detroit and around the country. Uh, what do you make of the demonstrations? What do you make of this moment? Uh, and the, the, the absolute ubiquitous nature of these protests. I mean, they are happening not just in cities like Detroit and Chicago and New York and Baltimore. They're happening in places like Salt Lake City, where you wouldn't necessarily imagine that people would be so exercised about this issue. What's your take on this? And what do you feel moved to do? Do you feel like there's something you could do to dismantle systemic racism in this country? Is there something you could do to stop police brutality against African-Americans? I think that's a question that a lot of us are asking ourselves right now. What is the role that each of us should be playing to make this stop, to make this go away? As always, the number here on the phones is 313 313- 577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. We especially want to hear from you if you're one of the people who has been out in Detroit in the streets in the last couple of nights. Are you participating in these demonstrations? Give us a call. Tell us why you're out there. Tell us what message you're trying to get out, and tell us what you want to have change. How do you want things to be different, not just in our city, but all over the country? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. My next guest is someone who studies race and its impact on criminal justice. University of Detroit Mercy Law Professor Jelani Jefferson Exum says police killings amount to, quote, a death penalty on the streets, and she knows quite a bit about the death penalty 
as a sentencing expert. Professor Exum, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes. So, so that's a very provocative idea. Uh, and I think some people would say, well, that's a bit of an exaggeration that this is like the death penalty on the streets. Walk us through your thinking uh, to get to that conclusion in this piece. You know, I, I understand that it, it was meant to be provocative and it was meant to have us really think about what we're doing and about how normalized police violence has become. We have a whole system in our courts um, at through the interpretation of our Constitution, the Eighth Amendment that protects us from cruel and unusual punishment. We have a whole system that's developed in our courts that's meant to protect lives at all costs. And that's the ideal that we put forward, that we say we will not sentence someone to death, even though they've been convicted of our most heinous crimes. But we say we'll not, we'll not sentence them to death in an arbitrary manner. We'll go through processes and procedures. We'll make sure that executions are humane. We'll make sure that there, have, that there are opportunities for appeal. We do everything that we can do in our courts to actually protect lives, at least that's the ideal that we put forth. Yet when we turn to outside of our court system, still at the hands of the state, so we have state actors, police officers, um, using force in unreasonable manners against individuals. And if it results in death, it really is like the death penalty on the street, and it's without all of the constitutional protections that we've given in the court space, where we allow for treatment that nobody would describe as humane. When you look at the George Floyd video, nobody's going to say that there was humane treatment of this man, where we allow for this punishment, a death sentence, for something that's as minor as being accused of forging a $20 bill. And so to me, when we look at it that way, it's meant to start a conversation to say, why aren't we putting as much investment of energy into protecting lives in everyday, everyday life, everyday occurrences, um, as much as we've devoted to in our court systems? Mm. One of the words that has come into my mind a lot over the last few weeks is proportionality. Uh, and that's an that's a important concept in the law, uh, of course, but it's also, I think, an important concept in, in our culture. Uh, and, and the way in which I'm thinking of that word right now is with regard to the reaction of someone like Amy Cooper or the police officer in Minneapolis to the behavior or the very existence of black people. There is something so disproportionate about these reactions to someone who asks you to leash your dog or someone who passes a phony bill. That, and I think that word gets to your analysis, your legal analysis, of this being like the death penalty. That's a really important concept in death penalty law is, is this the appropriate response to what this person is supposed to have done, is maybe even convicted of doing? Uh, talk a little more okay. about how we are seeing proportionality and disproportionate response really warp 
the experience of African-Americans in this country. Yeah, thank you for making that link, because sometimes people see these as separate issues. The use of violence by police versus this, um, what we're seeing now, we'll say it's a trend, but it's really just being captured by social media. But this idea of having everyday individuals, white individuals calling the police on black people simply for living their lives. And really, um, these, these are issues that are connected. They are about using the police as weapons because it's understood that there is this disproportional response to black individuals um, oftentimes. And this is all rooted in the same bias and racism upon which our country was built. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that today is the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Black Wall Street massacre. Mm -hmm. And it's a reminder of this truth, this horrific violence against black Americans just for living with some sort of measure of happiness and success that we've seen throughout our history. And it does come down to this notion of disproportionality, this idea that our systems are really the foundation of our country has played into a view of black criminality that is really a false narrative. It's an overblown narrative, but it fuels police responses to black individuals. It heightens anxiety and um, it heightens suspicion in interactions between police officers and, um, and black individuals. This has been documented in several studies. And the same thing happens in just everyday life when you have um, white people who are reacting to black individuals who are just living as any others, um, who are perceived as threats within their space. It's all coming from the same thing, and we have to acknowledge that. And this point about disproportionality brings me back to the death penalty analysis, which is that in order to protect us, give us our Eighth Amendment protection against cruel and unusual punishment, the Supreme Court has said that the death penalty cannot be used disproportionately. It has to be proportionate to the crime, which is why we can only have the death penalty for our most heinous crimes, for crimes that take the lives of others. You can't sentence someone to death legally for anything less than that. And yet we're using police force on the street to do that time and time again. It's not all police, of course, but it's enough and it's gone on for so long that it gets this sort of reaction that we're seeing today across the country. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dr. Jelani Jefferson Exum, a professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. We are talking about the demonstrations that we're seeing in Detroit and across the country in reaction to, inspired by the police brutality that African Americans uh, suffer in prolific and and very visible now ways uh, as a result of the history of, uh, of systemic and institutional racism in this country. Uh, we're talking about a piece that she has written that compares the police brutality that we're seeing against African-Americans to the death penalty. She calls it a death penalty on the streets. We, of course, want to hear from you this hour as well. Uh, what are you thinking about all of the demonstrations that we're seeing right now <clears throat> in Detroit and around the country? And what do you especially think about the larger context here? Uh, police brutality, institutional racism. These are not new concepts or new conversations that we're having. But I think, I hope, 
that all of this is inspiring us to think a little more about what solutions might look like. What things could we change? What things could you as an individual change that would have an effect on making equality more a part of American life? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. <clears throat> Before we get to listeners, uh, I, I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Exum, about, uh, about this solution-making that I think, I think we will now maybe get to uh, in a more serious way in, in this country. Um, when people ask you, what what are some of the solutions to the, these problems? What What do you say? Yeah, I, you know, there are solutions that need to happen. There's work that needs to happen on many different levels. And so sometimes it's difficult for people, especially if they're outside of the criminal justice space, to really know what they can do. And so I would say um, on an individual level, so there are lots of levels here, but on an individual level, this is all about really doing very intentional anti-racism work mm -hmm. and you can do that people of all races could and can and should be doing this in their everyday lives and this is where you're you are confronting racism that you see every day that you speak up that you speak out um, that you support others who are doing anti-racism work specifically in the criminal justice system as well um, and so if you don't know when to speak up when to speak out you don't know how to do that you're not sure how to do it you can elevate and amplify the voices of others who are doing it. So supporting the work of others. We have great institutions in the city of Detroit who are working really hard on these issues. The Detroit Justice Center um, does really great work. You can support them mm -hmm. through donating money, attending and supporting their programs. You can support groups like the Neighborhood Defender Service that is just working on everyday cases and making sure that justice is done. Places like Detroit Mercy Law has clinics that um, are doing great work out in the community and so supporting them as well. So that's on an individual level, but when we, when we go higher, we need real systemic change, which means that people have to care and work beyond these just current news cycles. And so we can think about ways to allow for more transparency about police misconduct and the responses to that misconduct. We could incorporate things like community watch groups um, that have a place in helping in that transparency and having some sort of say in, um, in the responses to misconduct. We have to have legal changes on how to hold officers responsible. I mean, I, I could really go, um, go on and on, um, but I should also add that we also have to give officers the proper support to do their work well, to have them well-equipped and trained to de-escalate, but also empowered to report abuses, power abuses, in a manner in which they will actually be protected. So there are so many levels of this, but it's because there are so many levels, if you're not doing anything, there's really no excuse for it because there are so many ways that you could be helpful in this space. Mm. Again, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Let's uh, get some callers involved in this conversation. Let's start with Ed on the west side. Ed, welcome to the show. Um, several decades ago, the Supreme Court crafted the uh, qualified immunity standard and applied it to police uh, conduct. And 
because of the way the standard was has been interpreted by the lower courts, it's effectively turned into a get-out-of-jail-free card for police officers who abuse people or who, who act in unacceptable ways. Uh, is your guest aware of any discussions in the either the academic bar or in the the, the amongst practitioners before the, the appellate courts uh, any discussions as to how to remold qualified immunity so it correctly protects officers who make misguided mistakes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but does not give officers who engage in beyond-the-pale behavior uh, um, a get-out-of-jail-free card? Yeah, Ed, that is a that is a really great question. I'm glad you called. Um, I, you know, th- this question of qualified immunity, and not everybody, I think, understands what that means or how that works, um, uh, but I, it does seem to me that, that part of the solution-making that we need to address in this context is about how police officers are held responsible for their behavior and how they are uh, protected. Uh, what about Ed's question about that discussion? Is that discussion taking place? Is it about to take place? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It, it is a discussion that is taking place um, in various forms. The, the problem with qualified immunity or the, the difficulty with changing it is just what um, – what the caller pointed out, which is that the Supreme Court created this, and so it will take the Supreme Court to make those changes in how it actually um, interprets and applies qualified immunity, which which basically just grants government officials immunity for violating constitutional and civil rights unless the victims of those violations can show that their rights were clearly established. And so that ends up being the discussion in the court. Was this a clearly established right that was violated, which ends up being more legally complicated than it may need to be. And so um, a lot of those changes are not the types of changes that happen at the police department level um, or really even the legislative level, but really are at the court level. Mm -hmm. Um, But even though that seems so far out and hard to, to change, because the court is still focused on clearly established rights, one thing that can change is the um, expected culture of policing and the way we discuss what we, how we expect officers to behave, because that ends up trickling into the courts. And so when we have cases where officers are charged with um, violating offenses, are charged, such as in this, in George Floyd's case, with some level of homicide, when it goes before a jury, they're thinking about, they're asked about what a reasonable officer would do. And it's there that we need to change the conversation. How are we expecting reasonable officers to act? And that we do have a lot of culture making um, power to work with, mm. even if we are not on the Supreme Court. Mm. We uh, can have conversations about what reasonable officers should do. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does strike me that that we almost need a complete rethink of the way in which not just officers are trained, but again, this accountability piece on the back end, the the, the frustration that people are feeling uh, about George Floyd is largely about the way in which this officer is 
being dealt with. And in other words, the the, the delay and charge and uh, the the idea that uh, you know there isn't a there isn't a swift way. I think for people to to feel satisfied that that uh, that somebody who who behaves this way is going to be punished, and that of course uh, it it makes it even easier i think to to paint police all police as 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 the problem um you know i i, I qualified immunity is really important in in terms of protecting the job that police are asked to do uh but but i think the way that it's rendered right now is really imbalanced in a way that uh that that bothers a lot of people and and they would like to see something different um Absolutely. And and in in this particular case, in the George Floyd case, actually, a lot of things happen more quickly than they normally do. Mm -hmm. We have officers who are immediately fired by the police chief. We have um, charges brought at least against one officer and and completely understand that um, there's frustration with not having charges brought against the other officers. We have long list, a long list of cases where no charges are ever brought against an officer in killings. And... um, and so that's really more of the norm to have no charges brought at all. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about this imbalance, it's certainly there. This case is an outrageous case, but it's one where maybe the wheels of justice are turning a little bit, a little bit faster than they normally do. And so that gives some hope of, of a better outcome in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, time mm-hmm. will tell. Yeah. Uh, again, Ed, really appreciate the call and the the comments. Let's, Go quickly to Nicole on the west side. Nicole, welcome. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the discussion. Uh Um, I have a lot to say. I was trying to get to it all. Um, I am a Detroiter for 20 years now, and I've been part of the protests. I was downtown the first evening, and I have to say, despite the chaos, there was such a feeling of joy Mm. and freedom and the march met up with, you know, a lot of people coming downtown just to relax and have fun and, um, when that, that mixture happened, you really felt all the hope and the aspirations and the anger and frustration of the youth of Detroit and folks coming into support. Um, and so I think we need to squash this narrative of these outside agitators mm. because it's just not true. Mm. And King debunked that myth decades mm-hmm. ago in letter from a Birmingham jail. There can be now outsiders because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I really recommend people read his full letter um, mm. and learn the truth. Yeah. And I think, you know, for um, what we can do individually, um, especially as white folks right now, we need to express full support and defend the protesters from attacks from everyone, from Trump down to our local officials like Duggan to our own friends and relatives. The irony of Livonia Mike Duggan calling people outsiders in this struggle is just <laughs> too much mm. when he did not even live in this city when he ran for mayor and has opened it up to corporate profiteers and robbed this city of so much of our assets. Mm. It's just unexcusable and mm. people can't. N- Nicole, his, his N- Nicole, before I let you go, um, are you planning to go back out? For more demonstrations? You are. Absolutely. I will be marching today. And, you know, what you were just talking about, how swift this arrest happened and how quickly, you know, it does seem to be, you know, the justice wheel returning compared to other cases is a direct result of the people of Minneapolis taking matters into their own hands and demanding immediate justice. pressure, sure. They put a lot of pressure. And we need a trial for all four of those police so a Minnesota jury 
can decide on their charges. And, you know, it needs to be first-degree murder for Chauvin, conspiracy accessory for the other cops involved, and we need them to, you know, serve the rest of their lives in jail. Long-term, you know, we do need systemic change. We, I'm a teacher, and we need real integration to make the promise of Brown v. Board real, and we need reparations. I I, I don't want to cut you off, but but we have a lot of of folks to get to, too, as well. But I really do appreciate your call uh, and, and your sharing, your perspective, especially of going down to the protests. Okay, uh, Jelani Jefferson Exum, it was really great to have you here with us for this conversation. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with a writer for The Undefeated who says Colin Kaepernick's actions in 2016 are as important now as they were then. Did we listen to the message he was trying to tell to all of America? Stay with us. On Detroit today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It's been four years since Colin Kaepernick first sat down, then took a knee during the singing of the national anthem before NFL games. The criticism of him was swift. People said the San Francisco 49ers quarterback was disrespecting the nation and service members. Now, many of those same people are asking why people engaged in demonstrations in cities across the country can't just be peaceful in the way that they protest. It's an irony that has caught a lot of attention within the past few days. And my next guest takes a close look at what Kaepernick was saying and doing in 2016 and how it resonates Today, I want to welcome um, Martenzi Johnson, who's a sports writer for The Undefeated, wrote a piece over the weekend titled Colin Kaepernick Tried to Tell White America. You can find all of that, his work, uh, at theundefeated.com. Martenzi Johnson, welcome to Detroit Today. Having me, Stephen. Appreciate it. So let's go back to what we were seeing four years ago with Colin Kaepernick and put that in context for what we're seeing right now in the streets. So four years ago, obviously, summer 2016 is kind of notorious for a plethora of uh, police involved or or shootings of of African-Americans or any other kind of trauma to African-Americans at the hand of the police um, and also uh, five Dallas police officers shot and killed at a protest um, and while all of this is going on, you know, uh, Colin Kaepernick starts sitting and later kneeling for the national anthem because he wanted to bring awareness to issues like this and he wanted accountability for um, African Americans being killed by the police and he wanted to bring um, light to racial inequality. So he starts this protest and then, like I said in the article, you know, criticism kind of falls in right after that. Um, he's doing this on the job. He's being anti-copies, being anti-white, all these sorts of things. And so when you juxtapose that now with another uh, African-American being killed at the hands of police, you see 
uh, people reacting kind of the opposite of Calvin Kaepernick, uh, burn, uh, buildings being burned down, looting, um, clashes with the police, and but you still see the same criticism of, is this the right way to do it? You could go about it a better way, and it kind of begs the question, well, if sitting and being quiet isn't the right way, and being loud and boisterous and, and burning stuff down is the right way, what is the right way to uh, combat uh, white supremacy and police violence? And I haven't seen an answer for that yet. Yeah. Uh, if, if the reaction to Kaepernick had been different than it was, do you think we would be where we are right now? I mean, it was such a high-profile uh, statement that he was making, and it, and as you point out, I mean, it was in the it was in the middle of uh, us contemplating what to do about police brutality and and valuing black life differently and and equally. Um, uh, if 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 white America had said, "Hey," We hear that. We hear you. Would we be seeing what we're seeing now? And I'm glad you brought up the word value, um, because if they did take kindly to what Kaepernick was doing, that would mean that most of America, most of white America, saw value in black lives. And so, yeah, then, of course, you wouldn't have a police officer feeling the need to kneel on someone's neck for nearly nine minutes or you would see the people the the cops surrounding him will push him off and say hey don't do that so it all comes down to the value of of a black life and what black lives matter literally is 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 trying to say that hey these these lives are valuable these lives do matter and don't do things that will put these black lives in jeopardy and also if you do put their lives in jeopardy hold the people accountable so if white america had listened to him before i think that just would have changed you know decades last centuries of of violence uh against black people so no i i I don't think we would be where we are today because then possibly racism would have been solved in 2016 (laughs) right um so uh this is uh, kaepernick comes in the line of a long history of athletes african-american athletes in particular who speak out and say, yeah, I play a sport and I have a platform because of that, but I'm going to use that to bring attention to, uh, you know, uh, to something else that I really, really care of, uh, care about. Um, but it's also, he also stands out in a way, in the way that he has been punished because of this. I mean, Colin Kaepernick lost his career essentially because of, of, what he said. Uh, talk about the importance of that, his sacrifice uh, in in the context of athletes who decide to speak up. Um, there's something there that to me stands apart as as well. Yeah, like he, he even said in the beginning, um, he said, I think a few weeks after he first kneeled or sat, that, you know, if I lose my job for this, if I lose endorsements for this, then it would have been worth it. And now that you're seeing, like, outside of the Nike deal, like, he has lost his job. He was 28 years old when this thing happened. And you could say maybe in the prime of his career or whatever, but he he risked his career, really his life, too. Like you said, he was getting death threats and stuff like that. But I think he recognized what, and you alluded to this, Muhammad Ali or Jim Brown or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Muhammad Ali. Um, it, it doesn't matter. They, they all knew what the greater purpose was. And, and like, LeBron James has his thing now, like more than an athlete, but these people realized this a long time ago, decades ago, that 
while I am an athlete, while I am rich, while I am a celebrity, I'm black first. And it it's incumbent on me to uh, put on, not put on for mercy, but like to, to support the people who look like me because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, what people are going to see first is that I'm black, not that I'm an athlete. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also wonder what you make of the 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 power of what we're seeing now versus what Kaepernick did that did not get people's attention in the right way it did get a lot of attention but now we're seeing much more aggressive uh, signs of protest and even some rioting uh, is this a more powerful way to get white america's attention than what Kaepernick did I think so because now you like people can turn off the TV. Like I think the NFL saw some ratings drop uh, when Kaepernick started this, but you can't turn off the TV. You can't turn off your phone. You can't you know put down the newspaper. This is everywhere, and it's forcing white people to have to pay attention to what's happening to black people. So what he was saying before was cops should be held accountable. Now Carson Wentz is saying that. Now Tom Brady is saying that. Now Michael Jordan is saying that. They're not going to lose their job for that, right? So it seemed like it was such a big deal before, but people are doing it now. But it's the video. Like, you just saw someone get killed by a police officer, and there's no, oh, he shouldn't have ran, oh, he shouldn't have resisted, he shouldn't have done this. He was just laying there, and he got killed. And you can try all the mental gymnastics that you want, but at the end of the day, you saw that a man was murdered on video, and it took four days for him to be arrested. And that's why you're going to get to the point where people are looting and rioting. Now, some people, yeah, for nefarious reasons, of course, but this is to bring attention to it so that you cannot turn a blind eye to this. You have to pay attention to, to what's happening to African Americans and be bold enough to say something about it. Okay, Martenzi Johnson, a sports writer for The Undefeated. Thanks very much for being with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is going to do it for us today. Uh, We will be back tomorrow. Remember to remember that it is all okay. Whatever you are feeling, however you are reacting to this right now, just keep listening, keep reading, keep talking, and we will get to a place of understanding. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.